Hi everyone, this is Criterion Channel Surfing and I'm your host Josh Hornbeck. This episode was originally intended to be a March episode and was recorded at the beginning of March when the COVID-19 outbreak was still just beginning and we were all just starting to realize how much the world was about to change for all of us. And in the time since, things really have changed. Uh, ramped up work schedules and a month and a half of crisis communications haven't allowed much time or bandwidth for podcast editing for me. So the episode you're about to hear is lightly edited. It won't be quite as polished or refined as I'd prefer. You'll hear all of our ums and uhs, the stammers and the pauses that I painstakingly remove in the best of circumstances. And even though my segment with Jill Blake of the Drinking While Talking podcast covers a few titles that expired at the end of March, Jill had so many really great things to say about films like Seven Days in May and The Court Jester that I decided to leave those segments in the episode. My guest for this episode also had some suggestions for businesses, charities, and organizations to support during this time of crisis. Jill would like to direct people to the Larry Edmonds Bookshop in Hollywood, which has been hit especially hard with the loss of Noir City and the TCM festivals. They're currently taking phone and email orders and will ship across the country. They have a lot of new and used books, lobby cards, posters, fan magazines, and more. You can reach them by email at info at LarryEdmonds.com or by phone at 323 463 3273 and make sure to let them know that Jill sent you. Jill would also like to encourage listeners to support the Film Noir Foundation at filmnoirfoundation.org. Both Jill and Matt Gasteyer would like to encourage listeners to donate or find other ways to support their local art house theaters while their doors are closed. Matt would also really recommend supporting Doctors Without Borders and Partners in Health. I'd also really like to encourage listeners to support the Art House America campaign that was started by Criterion and Janus Films that helps support independent and art house theaters across the country. We're going to have links to everything in our show notes so that you can find easy ways to go and support those organizations. If you do have resources to give to others during this crisis, I really want to encourage you to consider supporting or donating to those that have been hurt by this virus that has already done so much damage to the rest of the world. Thanks for listening. And now, here's the show. You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, The Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Matt Gasteyer joins me today to talk about the films of Keisuke Kenoshida that are only available on The Criterion Channel. But first, Jill Blake of The Retro Set and The Drinking While Talking podcast will be stopping by to discuss some of the entry points for classic cinema. Stay with us as we start surfing The Criterion Channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out The Robert Taylor Odyssey, a blog written by Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor takes you along for a journey into his cinematic obsessions, from the Criterion Collection and Film Noir to the films of Akira Kurosawa and the American Film Institute's Top 100. Find out more at therobertaylorodyssey.wordpress.com. 
Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here with Jill Blake of The Retro Set and co-host of the Drinking While Talking podcast. Jill, thank you so much for joining me today. I have been really excited to talk with you and get you on the podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about entry points into classic Hollywood. Uh, so thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Josh. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, so before we dive into this, uh, Tell me a little bit about the retro set and about drinking while talking and uh, kind of what it is that you do and your niche with uh, kind of classic Hollywood and uh, what it is that kind of gets you excited about film. Sure. Um, so the retro set is um, a classic film, classic um, or like, you know, uh, vintage retro inspired a uh, website that I found co-founded with Wade Sheeler, who is also my co-host for Drinking While Talking, which is sort of an extension um, of the retro set. And we launched the website, I think, 2013. Um, and it was under a different name at the time that we had to stop using um, because uh, we the, the website was The Black Mariah which uh, was a problem, apparently, because of the Black Mariah Film Festival um, that also that we just didn't know that we were that we were encroaching uh, on their uh, mm. copyright. So we got a very nicely worded letter from them. <laughs> um, and we kind of said, well, how can we change our website name? Went with the retro set, which is a little more uh, a little broader we don't have to necessarily yeah. cover just classic film we get into music we get into television you know wade's really really big into tiki culture so sometimes he'll cover those kinds of things a lot of mid-century stuff um and we do have a few contributing writers the thing about the retro set is uh we've always it doesn't make any money for us um yeah. it's it's just um uh, pretty much a creative outlet uh, so that we have a place that we can put whatever we want uh, when we don't when it's not work related. Um, mm. Wade is a television producer. I'm a freelance writer, and you know, I can't always write about the things I want to write about, which I think is true for anyone with a day job. And so it's nice to have that creative outlet. Um, as for drinking while talking, Wade and I have wanted to do a podcast forever, if only. For just for the excuse of us kind of shooting the breeze every month. We love seeing each other and talking to each other. Um, I live in Atlanta. He lives in Los Angeles. We usually see each other once or twice a year. Sometimes Wade will come out this way for work. Sometimes I'll be out in L.A. for um, different things. And one thing we always love to do is, uh, you know, go to the bar and sit and talk have a drink or two and our conversations are always lively and fun and we talk about all kinds of things. And so we decided to kind of bring that energy that we have together when we, when we uh, meet and that, yeah, I think a lot of people do, you know, when they, and it doesn't have to be alcohol, it could be coffee, it could be whatever, when you're just kind of sitting there and enjoying conversation. We don't do that enough anymore. I don't think as a, 
society. Uh, we're kind of glued to our phones all the time or whatever. So we're kind of bringing it back to just having conversation. And, you know, we kind of ride off the rails a little bit on the show. Um, but that's kind of how we are in person. So we've tried to capture that a little bit on the podcast and kind of playing with different formats and things. We're in our, uh, we're about to go into our second year um, and get into our big season, which is uh, the Classic Film Festival, the TCM Classic Film Festival in Los Angeles, if it does not get canceled. Yes, yes. (laughs) But um, but anyway, so that's a little bit about... um, about that. And then as in terms of, um, I used to be a um, freelance writer and contributor for Filmstruck. And then um, I also currently do some freelance writing for Turner Classic Movies. Um, I've done um, script writing uh, for their on-air hosts. And then I usually do programming articles for their uh, TCM database, TCMDB. It's kind of like an IMDB um, that's on their website. And then I'll occasionally do, um, eh, I guess, uh, more, well, I guess it would be considered social media posts, like for their Tumblr. Um, mm. So I, I, I dabble in those little areas there with Turner Classic Movies. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's really great. I... Uh... I really enjoy the rapport that you and Wade have with Drinking While Talking. It's a f- really fun show. And oh, thank you. For And I, I was really glad as we were getting ready to uh, schedule the recording. I was really glad to see that the show was back. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, that uh, you all are, are picking up uh, where yeah. you, you left off. So uh, this is uh, – I'm really excited that uh, – you're going to be picking up for TCM Fest. Uh, I think that that is uh, a really going to be a great conversation. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, we're excited. And so far, the lineup that they've announced is really great. We should be getting a schedule probably in the next week or two. Um, but they've uh, just this last week, um, they reassured everyone that the show is still going on. Now, again, we're kind of in this period of flux with uh, COVID-19 that, yeah. you know, it it could just be like a South by Southwest thing where it's out of their control and yeah. the city, you know, makes a decision for them. But as of right now, they're kind of playing it by ear and going ahead with it. And so along with that announcement, they also made some really big uh, film announcements and uh, personal appearances. So like the thing I'm most excited about is having that midnight screening of polyester with mm. mink stole there which is just gonna be great and uh so i'm i'm pretty excited about what all they're gonna um announce when the full schedule comes out it'll be th- this is like our super bowl or comic-con or you know whatever nerd event you want to <laughs> you know it's <laughs> it's definitely like it's it's the thing we wait for all year long that's really great. That's great. Yeah. Well, that makes, I think, a great transition to how did you first get into classic film? This is a question that I asked in our Criterion Channel Club Facebook group. Uh, what was it that first kind of drew you in to kind of these these older films uh, and classic Hollywood? So... This is so this is going to be kind of boring um, or maybe a little cliched, at least to start. But like the very first film that I that I saw that I remember that I saw in the theater was 
Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. There was mm. a there was a um, they had done a re-release. This would have been um, 1982, and um, I and and I usually when we're talking like when when I'm talking about classic film with Wade on the podcast. We usually exclude animated films from that, mm-hmm. you know, um, but that's that's really my entry point into um, into classics, into film, period. Right after that, it was maybe the same year I saw Wizard of Oz. And so mm. that seems like such a boring answer to give because Wizard of Oz is it's Wizard of Oz. I mean, like everybody's <laughs> seen it. It's the most recognizable classic film but i think you know as i was kind of thinking about this and i've been asked this question before you know i don't feel like that's is as common of an answer as that is i think i don't think that's a a bad thing i think it speaks Mm. to the power of that particular film in hooking anyone in the the casual moviegoer you know kids i think it's a multi-generational entry point to classic film but from there it's one of those things that was always there um in terms of deep cuts on classic films like you know pre-codes or those kinds of things you know we didn't have as much access to that other than you know because again i i was growing up pre-internet pre really accessibility to VCR, you know, that didn't really become, I mean, they existed and, you know, but they, they were expensive. And so unless you were like a early adopter on that kind of technology, I mean, I I remember going to rent a VCR, you know, at Mm -hmm. the gas station or at, uh, you know, where, or at the video store or whatever, or you could rent them at U-Haul. I kid you not. But, um, so, you know, you would sometimes there would be things that would air on antenna or whatever that you would catch and you wouldn't even know what it was um, because you didn't have uh, a guide online or on the television mm-hmm. to tell you what was on. So I would see snippets of things. I knew who actors were. So I knew who Betty Davis was. I knew mm-hmm. who Cary Grant was, but I didn't. It's like I knew their their images. Right. And so um, I would say that. I was probably five, six years old, start getting into like um, Miracle on 34th Street Mm. or um, I hate to say it, Gone with the Wind. Um, Those were the very recognizable films that would get aired on network television. Then it kind of got into when I was maybe eight or nine, 10 years old, I started getting introduced to Hitchcock, to Mm. Mel Brooks. Monty Python, Monty Python, and which I know is a lot of people would not consider that classic, but I'm talking like, you know, 70s back, Um, you know, and my dad and I would watch Young Frankenstein together or my mom and I would stay up late and on a Friday night and watch the birds together or Mm. uh, Beach Blanket Bingo, Gidget. Uh, oh, another one was uh, the Beatles movies. So help on a hard day's night. So none of these are are necessarily your, you know, deep cut, great classic films like an ace in the hole or sunset Boulevard or all about Eve. But all of these were like, easy entry points for for a kid. Yeah. Um, you know, beach blanket Bigo is a 
terrible movie. It is absolutely (laughs) horrendous. But it kind of opened my eyes to this other time and made me interested. And and so all of those were kind of where how I started to get into it. And then in terms of really digging deep into uh, classic film, I was probably starting in high school, but really it was college for me where I started exploring specific studio Hollywood studios, specific actors, directors, and I would kind of go on these little mini journeys. Um, so I was probably 18, 19, 20 when I really started to get into those other classics. But the foundation was laid long before with these with these big name accessible films. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know, my parents were never really big classic uh Hollywood watchers, but mm-hmm. I do remember things like The Wizard of Oz or Hitchcock's uh remake of The Man Who uh uh, Man knew, who knew, too knew too much. Yeah, mm-hmm. those are ones that really stood out to me, and it wasn't until college that I really started to see a few more classic films and get into that. And uh, it was it was post college that I started really diving in a little mm-hmm. deeper, and it was uh, Lubitsch's "To Be or Not to Be." Yeah, that really. Uh, I was dating someone at the time who absolutely loved that film, and that was the film that hooked me. That's a great one too. And that's one that's a go-to for me. Yeah. When um I'm introducing someone who has negative preconceived ideas about black and white film. Yeah. Um yeah. I, that is there's about 10 movies that I'll pull from when I'm really trying to convert someone and <laughs> uh to be or not to be is it because they are so shocked that something like that was made when it was made like they're like what is this and i'm like yeah you are missing out on so much like this is it so that is that is i'm i love hearing those stories like what hooked you and you have such a great hook i'm like wizard of oz and you're like to be or not to be (laughs) (laughs) well and again you know it's those those things that you know you it really did it took something as sharp and brilliant as to be or not to be to really get me completely locked in and right uh, and you have yeah. to learn the language and and the yeah. other thing is you know when you go to and this is probably an entirely other conversation to have but you know a lot of times when you go see a classic film uh, at a rep house if it's not at a classic film centric event okay you have people that just laugh you know, at Mm -hmm. the slang or they laugh at the clothes. And sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it is funny, but it's, it's, I think some people go into it and they, I don't know if it's like a, they're, they're afraid to give them. it's like watching melodrama, like a Douglas Sirk melodrama. I don't know if they're afraid to give themselves over to it and just feel it. Or if it's a, they think they're better than it but there is this you know i think there's a a difficult leap that people have to make to put themselves in that time period and what would have been current at the time so finding that right like i would never in a million years 
have someone who has never seen a classic film and especially like a black and white classic film, I would never show them like an Andy Hardy movie with Mickey Rooney. Like Mm -hmm. that would be disastrous. (laughs) But I may show them National Velvet with Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Taylor and Mickey Rooney and Anne Revere and being like, okay, you know, Mickey Rooney as, you know, in Breakfast at Tiffany's being horribly racist or, you know, Mickey Rooney when he was like an old, cranky, mean old man. But there was a time when he was the biggest star in Hollywood and Mm. he and there's a reason for that. He was great. And so I'm not going to show you the Andy Hardy movies he made because that's like that takes you got to. You got to really be into it. But I'm going to show you National Velvet, which has a modern connection. You have Elizabeth Taylor, you know, who everybody knows and lived for a very long time and was was relevant her entire life. So that's your that's your hook in. It's in color. Mickey Rooney's a little older. And then you have interesting political things that are going on. As well, plus you have this strong feminist storyline. So that would be a great entry point. So I think you have to find those those films that incorporate modern themes or themes that we can relate to today. Yeah. But also are firmly rooted in the time in which they were made. And then you go, okay, you like this? Now we can try this, 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 and this. Or, you know what? I really thought Mickey Rooney was fantastic in that. Okay, let's go with one of the musicals he did with Judy Garland, you Mm -hmm. know? So that's kind of how, you know, so I I think that there is this, um, you know, I I have a nine-year-old daughter and living with me, I think is some, you know, my husband and my daughter both like, they probably just get so tired of me because I'm constantly trying to uh, introduce them to the things that I, the movies I love. And my husband, I think he just has Stockholm syndrome. He just goes with it. (laughs) Um, My nine year old, it's like, you know, I will be damned if you grow up and not, (laughs) not love classic film. But I've, (laughs) I, I find myself, having to pull back a little bit and go, okay, I have to show her things that are, that aren't going to go over her head that she's not going to be completely bored with. And so I usually go with, you know, the screwball comedies. I just showed mm-hmm. her the thin mm-hmm. man uh, mm-hmm. at new year's and she loved it. Yeah. So even though she probably didn't get half of it, but she loved it. And so it's finding that balance and really it's, there's there are films that are generally I think that are just generally great to show to pretty much anyone. But then it's also a very personal uh, discovery process that you kind of have to talk to that person and go, all right, what are the things you like or what? And then kind of find that entry point based on what their interests are or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about the classic films that are on the channel here you know we have a lot of people that are subscribing to the criterion channel uh we have people that came because they want the classic films but we also have people that are coming and are maybe a little overwhelmed by all of the classics that they're putting on i mean the 
uh, I'm a little sad that we're talking this month rather than last month when they had all of the Betty Davis films. Oh my and, God, yeah. Uh, I mean, I just dipped my toes into the Betty Davis stuff and it was incredible. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, there's there's just so much there that they're putting on every month. And uh, we're getting a lot of uh, director bundles, but we're also getting a lot of actor bundles. And uh, based on what is kind of new this month and what is leaving this month. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some good entry points for people that maybe feel a little overwhelmed by all of the classic film content and they're looking for some good uh, good ways to navigate and maybe get some highlights of uh, classic film? Sure. So in terms of the bundles that are new for March, um, we have a really great... Um, Peter Bogdanovich bundle. Um, and there's there's three films, Targets, The Last Picture Show, and Paper Moon. All three of those are fantastic. Um, yeah. But the one that I would urge people to check out probably before the others is Targets. Mm. Um, it is, oh man, just a really great movie. And has, I think a lot that we can relate to uh, in our, you know, just current uh, world. Um, and it's ter it's absolutely terrifying. It's a terrifying movie. So it's, it's not mm. a feel good film whatsoever, but um, Boris Karloff's in it. Mm. And uh, I believe it was his last film. And it is, if you love, if you are a cinephile, not classic film centric, but just a cinephile. This movie is essential, mm -hmm. an absolute essential film. Um, moving on to Rita Hayworth. There's a star in Rita Hayworth block. A lot of people know her or at least know her image from uh, King Vidor's uh, Gilda, which is here in this lineup. And she's magnificent in that. I would also recommend they're all really great. But um, I would, if I had to pick three, um, I would do Only Angels Have Wings, mm. 1939, which I've actually, I had uh, selected out because it's also, I believe, just currently on the channel, period. But yeah. um, Only Angels Have Wings, uh, Howard Hawks, 1939, one of her earliest roles. And she's not, she's definitely not the highlight. In this movie, and I wouldn't even say that she's at her best because um, she's a young actress and they're kind of figuring out what to do with her. But I think it's a, a very interesting starting point um, if you're interested in her career and her films. I think you need to start with that to kind of mm. see. Uh, and she's very much a supporting role, but very, very key. And um, her scenes with Cary Grant are really great. But um, mm. so that would be one I would highly suggest. The The second one, we have several um, musicals here, um, and she's well known for her partnership with um, Fred Astaire. But this movie, Cover Girl, with, uh, starring Gene Kelly, that's what I would recommend. She's absolutely delightful in this film. And uh, it also has the famous um, alter ego dance 
that Gene Kelly does. And, and he's very early in his career, film career as well, too. But the alter ego dance where he dances with his uh, reflection or whatever. So that's really great. The final one is Separate Tables. Mm. Um, and this is later on in uh, Hayworth's career. Um, it's a star-studded film and complicated subject matter and some things probably don't hold up very well today specifically uh the storyline revolving around david niven's character niven won an academy award for this performance but it's uh, she's magnificent in this film it Mm. may be one of her best performances so those would be uh, those three and then finally um there's some just like individual titles that are new on the waterfront, fail safe, Dr. Strangelove. But what I would recommend is doing a double feature of the front page and his girl Friday. And the front page is a Lewis milestone. It has um, Pat O'Brien and um, Adolf Manju. And the, uh, this is, you know, the first iteration of that play and then his girl Friday is the Howard Hawks remake that is more famous with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell they did a little gender switch on the role of Hildy so um, I actually I love his girl Friday I actually prefer the front page I think interesting interesting in terms of how they tell the story Mm. Um, there's so much of about his girl Friday that I absolutely love and mainly the performances themselves, but in terms of the story and how it's, I just think the front page does a better job of telling that story. Cause it's very, very dark. And I, I just, prefer, I think I prefer it for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I would definitely suggest those, those a double feature of those and, just because they are so, even though the story is the same, um, they are so different, and yeah. it it does make for a nice a nice little double. And then in terms of what's expiring at the end of March, I just picked out a couple. Um, there is the um, starring Danny Kaye. I'm not a huge Danny Kaye fan, mm-hmm. but um, the Court Jester is an absolute must. And these, a lot of these are hard to find. Although I think maybe a few of them, they have come out on Blu-ray, but they may be out of print. But these are ones that you will not see on like uh, TCM. They, they very, very rarely get the rights to those, but the court jester. um, And if you have kids, Danny Kaye is great for kids. Um, but the court jester, I think is just a very, very funny movie. And it's one of those that I think you do have to kind of give yourself over to it. (laughs) Um, and just let it, let it, let Danny Kay just wash over you. Um, (laughs) but I will say that I, I never saw a single Danny Kay movie until like four years ago. And, um, like I've never seen white Christmas ever. And um, like major blind spot. And I, uh, they did a screening of the court jester at the TCM film festival. I guess it was four years ago. And uh, Wade and his wife convinced me to go. Promise you'll love it. And Fred Willard was there. 
And he did a little interview beforehand talking about how much he loved this movie. And sitting directly in front of me, I could touch his head, was Edgar Wright. Mm. And uh, sitting next to Alicia Malone. And they're very good friends. And um, so I watched The Court Jester with Edgar Wright. And (laughs) Edgar Wright really loves this movie. And he was... I mean, it just enhanced the experience for me. And I thought, well, it's one of those times where I just liked the movie because I was essentially sitting next to Edgar Wright and he was just like throwing his hands up and laughing and clapping and the whole bit. And then I brought I came home and I watched it with my family and I was like, oh, no, this is just a fun movie. Mm -hmm. So um, I highly recommend that. And then I wanted to say in this Burt Lancaster um, block starring Burt Lancaster, Every single one of these movies is so choice. Um, mm. But I I will always, always, always recommend Seven Days in May. Uh, John mm. Frankenheimer. It stars um, my man, Frederick March. It has uh, Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster, Ma- Martin Balsam, uh, Edmund O'Brien. Uh, this movie, John, John Hausman is in it. And if you want to talk about prescient and just completely bonkers movie absolutely recommend that so i think and i mean i could totally keep going but that's kind of where um those are the ones that i would absolutely recommend that are new and leaving for for the month of march that's great that's really good i think those are really good recommendations i think you know some of these starring bundles are so vast Mm -hmm. and uh you know, it's great because you can really uh, trace the the path of someone's career. I went through the entire Barbara Stanwyck bundle that they uh, had up a yes. while ago, and it's it's incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. And not every film is is my favorite, no. but it did give me a really good handle on who she was as a performer. And by the end, you just you cannot help but respect what she did and by the end you're just you're in awe of this this actor right and uh it's it's great and but you know you just don't always have the time to watch the entire set and so getting getting to see you know what are some of the the ones especially in something like the rita hayworth or the danny uh the danny k bundle i i just know that i'm not going to have enough time this month to watch every Danny Kaye film that's out there. Exactly. And there's some of these that you have to be a real Danny Kaye fan. Like <laughs> like Hans Christian Andersen, I covered that one for Filmstruck and I wanted to stab myself in the eye. Like it was <laughs> just I was like this is horrid beyond. But like I have been told that um I've actually I have seen Wonder Man and it is it is very good. And mm. I've seen The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which has been uh, was remade a few years ago with Ben Stiller. Um, those are essentials. But yeah. if um, and I have seen those, I have not seen A Song is Born. I have not seen Up in Arms or The Kid from Brooklyn. But I do know that those are like you got to be a Danny Kaye fan. Yeah. So to yeah. me, I feel like The Court Jester, it's it's a musical and it's silly, but he does the one thing that Danny Kaye does so well is um, wordplay, and it's completely uh, there's several famous wordplay moments of dialogue in this film, and there's one about poison and the, the poison. Uh, 
poison anyways it's like tongue twister kind of things and so he does so again it's of a time and it has kind of a vaudevillian feel to it um and he's very much like he's the song and dance man he's like a billy crystal you know before there was billy crystal he is that he can do it all and so you there's a corny factor to it i guess (laughs) but again like just allow yourself to you know shut everything off for two hours and just enjoy it and i think to me that is that is like a great like if you just saw that movie and nothing else like you'd be like you know what i can appreciate him as an entertainer you know (laughs) like yeah yeah. so don't don't be a hero is what i'm saying and be like (laughs) i am going to be a danny k completionist because you may it may drive you insane you don't have to die on that hill (laughs) no no and if you do bravo but like if you see the court jester and you go okay I'm loving this dude, then have at it. But, <laughs> you know, like that, w- that would be definitely my, my recommendation to start there. So that's, that's great. <laughs> well, um, you know, when, when, when we look at the, the cinephile, kind of the, the art house community, uh, a lot of us uh, approach film from an auteurist theory where we, we really kind of, give ourselves over to the idea that the director is the author of the film and we we are following director careers and something that's interesting on the Criterion channel and they did this on Filmstruck as well where they would do starring bundles and they would do actor bundles and you would trace an actor's career and in your kind of experience with classic film have you found it more useful to trace director careers or have you found it more useful to trace actor careers or a little bit of both? I would say a little bit of both, but then also the studios uh, too. And mm. so because they're what, at least until like uh, maybe the 50s, early 50s, you know, the studio, des- they decided, you know, they, yeah. Um, and so, now you had extraordinary directors like a John Ford or like a William Wyler or a Howard Hawks that they were very much studio men, okay? But they were able to balance the requirements of what the studio wanted and their own vision, okay, with you know, in certain cases, maybe minimal interference, you know. So I kind of, you know, have kind of dabbled in doing the, all right, I am going to, you know, go on, say, you know, one of the earliest ones I ever did was an Alfred Hitchcock Odyssey, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and that's a great starter, you know. So I would I would do that. And in terms of a director who was definitely had his own vision, but so often had interference from the studios and from the producers. Um, you know, a prime example of this is like the ending of suspicion, you know, mm, they had to mm-hmm. change that. So, you know, that I would go, all right, we're going to go on a Hitchcock Odyssey. or But I usually would go, all right, I'm going to do Warner Brothers gangster films. 
And then I would like, you know, go through three or four of those and go, you know what? There's this one actor that's been in every single one of these. And it's uh, we'll just say, you know, Pat O'Brien. So and he's really great. So now I'm going to pivot and I'm just going to watch like 14 Pat O'Brien pre-codes. And then in those Pat O'Brien pre-codes, oh, well, there's this other actor. So so it's kind of like I would it's like a snow, it's like a snowball. I would start with the intention of doing, say, an odyssey through an act, one actor's filmography or one director's filmography and then find myself getting diverted i mean i'm very yeah. easily distracted and so i would you know and then i would start going off on all these directions and then funnily enough you end up kind of back where you started mm-hmm. um so or i would be like you know um i love the wizard of oz and so let me start going through the mgm musicals because there's such a you know you have the warner brothers musicals especially the um the pre-code busby berkeley films those are way different than say fred astaire at rko yeah. or say uh eleanor powell at mgm or getting into the 40s which was like the heyday mgm musical they dominated it so um sometimes i go for that and there is a definitely a different vibe uh depending mm. on what studio was producing what film so i I think you, there's really no wrong way to do that, but I think you kind of find the things that you like. If there is an actor you like, say, let me use Cary Grant as an example. I've seen almost every film he's ever done. And, um, but during that journey of going through his films is how I discovered Hitchcock or how I discovered Mm -hmm. Deborah Carr, which led me to Powell and Pressburger. Or, you know, so I think... In t- instead of when you're dealing with classic film, instead of following, you know, kind of that auteur uh, journey, I think being open to and because these studio films, you know, they're actors and actresses and directors and musical directors and editors. I mean, they're property to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so they used these actors and directors. I mean, there's a lot of crossover, you know, they're in, you know, there may have been an actor that was in eight or nine movies in a year and you'll see similar pairings, you know, and it wasn't, sometimes it's because the audiences loved say Myrna Loy and William Powell together, but sometimes it's like, you got to use your assets because you've got money yeah. on the line. And so they would just yeah. cast people together like Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis in dark victory. Humphrey Bogart is like, totally miscast but it's like they got to use they got to use who they got right so um i think if you go into these movies and you you find whatever it is that hooks you in and then be willing to kind of branch out in different directions as you're going through that journey and you will there's so much to discover so many great minor supporting players and you know lesser known directors out there to discover I think to me, that's that's kind of how I do it. And that's how I always encourage people to to discover classic film. Well, that's great. Yeah, I think about uh, a few months ago, they had uh, their MGM bundle, musicals bundle. Yeah. And I, I never, I always just kind of 
dismissed Judy Garland a bit Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of Wizard of Oz and I had never really followed her career much and I ended up being absolutely mesmerized by her as a performer. She's terrific. She's terrific. It was incredible. My wife joined me for more of the musicals than she thought. I thought, I don't know that I could handle many of these musicals Mm -hmm. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. there's, there's so many of them. But Oh my goodness, it was it was amazing. She is such a tremendous performer. Did you happen to did you happen to catch the clock by any chance? Uh I caught the clock when it was on Filmstruck okay. uh last okay. year and that was one of the great uh one of my favorite discoveries uh yeah. last year. Or and two it's years a, ago. Yeah. and for people yeah. who don't know, it's a it's not a musical. Yes. And it's it's so good. it's she was a a fine a fine actress. She and I say really fine was, yeah. in a in a I mean that as she was a great actress. Yeah. Yeah. Um no, I'm so that makes me so, so happy because yeah. she is so often reduced to either the the Dorothy Gale or, mm-hmm. you know, drug addled Judy. I mean yeah. it's it's either or. And so yeah. she she had she was just a an enormous talent. Well, and I think the thing that surprised me more than anything is she was such a generous performer as well. Oh, you absolutely. See the rapport she has with every person she shares the screen with on on in every scene. Uh, absolutely. That, that she is she is there, she is present. Uh, mm-hmm. She has chemistry with every single cast member. Uh, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis just blew me away. Um, mm-hmm. It just, yeah, it's it was it was phenomenal. And now I know that Judy Garland is someone that I'm going to, when I see her come up in a film, that's a film that I'm not going to sleep on because I know that that's that fantastic. She's now somebody that I'm going to really, really try right. to follow. And and the thing with her is that she had, you know, she had a lot of issues and was mm-hmm. a, you know was a drug addict which was the product of them putting her on speed and diet pills um at MGM and I mean they they made her an addict yeah, yeah. and and I think people forget that 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 she and she's one of the more I mean the studios did horrendous things yes. to a lot of their actresses but she really it's just it's very sad and she uh, i always use the um the filming of the pirate and that's vincent minnelli her husband directed that and the pirate is just it's great and it's like you either love the pirate or you hate it because Hmm. it is just it's way over the top okay but um it's her and gene and gene kelly and and gene loved judy they did three films together uh busby berkeley's for me and my gal they did The Pirate and they did Summer Stock. And then they were supposed to do Easter Parade together. And Gene broke his foot. And then Fred Astaire essentially came out of retirement and had a whole second career after that. And um, mm. But anyways, during The Pirate was like one of the worst times in Judy's life. And she was missing a lot of work there were stretches where she i mean if you look at her in the movie she's really thin she looks very frail and she was going through a lot of stuff personal and and otherwise and but the the same thing everyone says the same thing that who were on that shoot other than vincent minnelli um Mm -hmm. is that when she came 
on to set when she was able to when she was not ill and she was able to come to the set no one worked harder than her mm. so as much as she had sometimes had problems with that reliability in terms of showing up every day because she was sick it wasn't for a lack of professionalism or a lack of wanting to do a good job because the if she was physically and mentally able to be there that she threw herself into her work yeah. and was and like you said a generous performer and you know believed in what she was doing and so i i love that movie as hard as it is sometimes to watch her in that because she if you know what's going on you're like oh my god she's barely holding it together but i love that movie because She's straight up surviving. And then she yeah. just, I mean, she's absolutely incredible in that. I mean, there's even a, mo there's a big dream sequence where, um, you know, Gene Kelly is in essentially like a skin tight, short, short, short Daisy Duke romper ensemble. <laughs> and oh my Lord, his thighs. But, um, and he's like swinging a cutlass and there's like flames and he's bad. He's a pirate and he's like battling the bad guys and like clutching jewels and gold and laughing. And and then there's like he picks up a giant pole and starts like pole dancing with it. I mean, it is like there's a lot of feelings going on when you're watching this. <laughs> and um, her character is sitting there and watching him. But they filmed her from the back because she wasn't able to be there for it. So there's a lot of those Yes. moments where she's just not there but yeah. when she is man judy brings it <laughs> she's there <laughs> i kind of feel bad for her i'm like damn you know judy you missed out <laughs> like i would have loved to have been her stand in that day to just watch that <laughs> yes yes oh. well who are some of your favorite actors uh, or directors? Who are some of the people that you really like to follow and like to to research, uh, to to learn what you can, to follow their career and kind of trace that path? Uh, or maybe some of the studios or some of the 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 themes, uh, the the styles that you like to kind of explore. Sure. Um I'll start with like styles first. I'll say that, you know, the 60s and 70s were kind of like where I first started. Mm -hmm. But I, I tend to gravitate toward the 1940s, usually, well, pretty much the whole decade. But I love anything that is in the immediate uh, World War II. And then I love how dark we get uh, mm -hmm. as soon as the war is over. So yeah. I, I love that that period of time for filmmaking because it's it's so <laughs> you have like a mix of propaganda <laughs> and cynicism <laughs> and it's like woo go america and then you know <laughs> you know like very very dark uh i can't uh i want to kill you um <laughs> then after that i love 1930s uh screwball pre-code films which for anyone who's not aware of what pre-code um this is before the uh production code the um, Hayes office started saying oh you can't have a man and woman in bed together you can't kiss for longer than three seconds you can't 
drink too much. You can't have an affair without someone's got to like die of consumption. Like, you know, there basically it was this kind of bogus moral guide that, you know, Joseph Breen (laughs) decided this is this is what, you know, we got to clear out filth. And so that that started kind of going into effect around 1934. And although I think that the code enforcement really pushed filmmaking in a very uh, creative manner because of you have like a director like Ernest Lubitsch, um, who was able to circumvent the code all the time. But anyways, I do love those pre-code films. In terms of um, favorite directors, you know, Lubitsch is one. William Wyler is hands down my favorite director. Mm. The the fact that he could do something like The Letter and do something like Dead End and then The Best Years of Our Lives and then Roman Holiday and then Ben-Hur and The Big Country and Mrs. Miniver. I mean, he did The Collector, uh, the Desperate Hours. I mean, this guy did every he did westerns he did big dramas he dabbled a little bit in comedy so he's absolutely my favorite i also uh love ida lupino as an actress yeah. and a director and she's finally getting her due and then in terms of actors i am a huge frederick march fan and I'm actually have been for like the last five or six years, uh, been researching his life and career and his wife, actress Florence Eldridge, um, who was did some films and with him, but was also an accomplished stage actress. And he was also mm. an accomplished stage actor, the first actor to win two Oscars and two Tony Awards. And so they uh, so I'm hopefully um, my, I want to write a book about them. And so I've kind of been spending uh, the last, I'd say, yeah, six or seven years on that. And it'll probably be another like 47 years before I get it done. Cary Grant is another huge one for me. Um, James Cagney, Myrna Loy, Betty Davis, Gene Kelly, John Frankenheimer, director. Billy Wilder is another huge one for me. Jack Lemmon. So, um, I mean, we could, we, I could talk yeah. for like a 47 <laughs> hours. I mean, they're all just, I, I love them all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think those, those, those give some, some names for people to, you know, I think while we get the director or the actor bundles that are pretty easy to spot every mm-hmm. once in a while, we'll get a random, uh, film that's you know put in as a double feature or right. a you know something that just pops up randomly in the feed and uh it's it's just it's great to have some some directors or some names uh some right. actors to look out for because uh you know uh, there are there's there's this whole era that uh it's just it's good to have some some guidance uh when when we get all of the titles dumped on the first of the month and right. uh, we're, we're maybe at a loss of where to start. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely overwhelming. And, you know, for example, with with an actor like Frederick March, he there's a I looked at the lineup and there are a couple films that are um, currently on the service that he stars in. Uh, one is Renee Claire's I Married a Witch mm. uh, with Veronica Lake. 
And then you have um, Seven Days in May, John Frankenheimer's film. The thing about Frederick March that's so interesting, and he's not very well known uh, today, but at his, well, he was a matinee idol um, in the early 30s. And he got his start again on the stage. And then he was a paramount contract player and he they kind of didn't know what to do with them and they were putting him in these you know uh, kind of he was kind of arm candy for um you know claudette colbert or clara bow and then he and he was in several dorothy arsner movies like the uh, i think he was in more dorothy arsner movies than any other male actor and um so and because she was a she was like the female director in Hollywood and was at mm-hmm. Paramount. And um, but where he kind of showed that he was more than just kind of a fluffy, pretty face was when he did Ruben, Ruben Mamoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that's where he, the film he won his first Academy Award for. And then he definitely is considered a dramatic actor today and that's what he probably did best but he did do comedy very well so he's in Lubitsch's um design for living um Mm. he did uh William Wellman's nothing sacred but we also have him in a star is born in 1937 he did uh I married a witch which is also a comedy and one of the last kind of romantic comedy roles he did and then when he did the best years of our lives in 1946 that's uh william wyler and he won an academy award for that that's kind of the demarcation line that i use for when he shifted from leading man or leading romantic uh romantic lead to more i don't ever want to say supporting actor with him because he was still a top name but he definitely went into more character-based roles Mm. and he was one of the few actors who was able to make that transition from, you know, matinee idol to romantic leading man to, you know, he had just such a long career to up to his final film, which was um, Frankenheimer's The Iceman Cometh. And so um, in Seven Days in May, this is like peak character driven role for Mm. him so i always encourage people to check him out because he had such a such a range and such a long career where he he totally he he could have been one of those actors that you know by the was like you know like a warner baxter who is fantastic but is firmly stuck in the 1930s that's it or yeah. Richard Barthelmess, yeah. who was a silent film actor. And then, you know, he had a little bit of a resurgence in the 30s and was in, you know, Only Angels Have Wings or whatever. But you don't see them much past that. So it's like they had an expiration date, you know. Yeah. And, and but, you know, Cary Grant's another. I mean, Cary Grant could get it until the day he, <laughs> until the day he died. <laughs> but like, and, and he, you know, he was still in romantic leads. Um, but that's a rare exception. So I always, you know, try to steer people towards those actors that definitely uh, had those long careers. Burt Lancaster's another one, which again, you have a whole lineup for him or Sidney Poitier or yeah. So, I mean, these are all like just long career actors that really you could find anything in that entire segment and go, this is fantastic. That's great. That's great. Well, Jill, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Oh, yeah, uh, I had a great I will, time. 
definitely have you back on to uh, continue to help guide us through the avalanche of classic films that comes our way. <laughs> Hopefully uh, I didn't bury you too much. I, I'm very enthusiastic about my about my movies. I love so. it. This is this is fantastic. Great. Uh, I really appreciated it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, where can people find you online? Oh my goodness. So I am on the Twitters and that is uh, at Biscuit Kitten. And then you can also follow the Retro Set on Twitter. And uh, we do have a, a Drinking While Talking Twitter handle, but I don't think we've done much with it. But um, <laughs> so but you can find me there. And then I'm on, I've been told I'm on Letterboxd but, and I keep getting followers on there, but I don't do anything with it. So, so that's that. Perfect. So, but, but Twitter is usually where I'm at. So, you know, come find me. Great. Great. Well, we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Matt Gasteyer and I dive into the films of Kisuke Kenoshita that are only available on the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out Film Baby Film, a podcast hosted by Jonathan James Lobinger. A podcast for people who love movies, or films, if you're being pretentious. Host Jonathan James Lobinger discusses a wide range of film topics with guests who have more interesting perspectives than he does. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out videos by Daisuke Beppu. In this series of warm and inviting videos, Daisuke Beppu shares his thoughts and reflections on the Criterion Collection, home media, and the films he loves. Find his videos on YouTube and search for Daisuke Beppu. My guest today is Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast, now reaching the end of its third season. Of course, regular listeners of Criterion Channel Surfing recognize him from our regular segments providing tips and tricks for navigating the Criterion Channel. Matt, thank you again for coming on the show and uh, getting ready to dive into the works of Kisuke Kenoshida. I'm excited. I uh, have been watching his movies a little and trying to work my way through this massive bundle, and so I, uh, I'm excited to talk a little bit about his work. That's great. Well, we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming-only digital library. And because the channel releases so much incredible content each month, it's really easy to overlook these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we really try to pay attention to these overlooked corners. So we're going to give you a few recommendations for films that you may have lit missed. If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has a letterboxed list of Criterion streaming-only channels. You'll find a link to that in our show notes. Now, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, Criterion has a ton of films from Japan in their permanent library, and the director that they have the most films from is is Kisuke Kenoshida. And so we thought we'd dedicate an entire episode to the films of Kenoshida. Matt, before we dive into this, I would just love to know, you know, what got you started on this journey through the films of Kenoshida? Well, I plan to watch all of the permanent streaming films on the Criterion channel, just because I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I... Uh, started off with um, you know the big 
titles from filmmakers that uh, were not available on disc, um, things like the Ozu collection that they have, um, a few of the Kurosawa films that are not available on disc, and decided I might as well uh, work my way through. A lot of the movies that I really focused on, though, are the Japanese films, just because Japanese filmmakers in general, often I really respond to their work. And Criterion has such a huge catalog of Japanese films. I'm sure you've talked about this with Michael Hutchins, but I I believe the majority of their permanent streaming uh, titles are Japanese films, or at least a plurality of them. And uh, so many of them come from about 10 directors. You know, the Ozu films, the Narusei films, uh, the Shinoda films, and then the the big one is Kenoshida. Mm, yeah, yeah, he is. It, it's pretty, pretty incredible how much there is there. Um, as I've been doing a little bit of research into his uh, filmography, I haven't done the deep dive into it, but it seems like just about all of his films are on the channel. Is that correct? Yeah, it's 43 of his 50 films that he made, are, or at least yeah. that um, are listed on Letterboxd uh, and IMDb, it's possible he made more than those, but it's the vast majority of his films that that are available. And and they, it's not like they cut off at the last seven or something, they're sprinkled throughout. So it it really is the the vast majority of his his films and all of his really high profile titles. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, because he has so many films here, uh, I feel like this is a this is a great way for us to really dig in and explore. So we'll probably have a follow up episode to Kenoshida later on, maybe next year, where we'll where you and I will probably dive into more of his films because there's there's so much. As I I've done my alphabet soup approach to the back catalog, I have accidentally stumbled across so many films of Kenoshida's already the the Carmen films and uh, a few others uh, as I was looking through the films that I wanted to talk about I was like wait a minute I've already seen this and I've already seen this as well what are your thoughts about Kenoshida and in what you've seen of his work so far well he's a really interesting director he has five films that are released on disc from Criterion four of them are in an eclipse box which is in my opinion, one of the best Eclipse boxes, not mm. necessarily because of the quality of the films, but because of the marvelous story that it tells. Um, mm. The films that are included in it are his uh, his first four films that he made. He was somebody who really wanted to be a filmmaker from childhood and worked very hard to get a job at Shochiko and worked with a lot of the great filmmakers that were um, making movies in the 30s, including Ozu, um, at that studio, and finally got his opportunity during World War II to to direct films. And the first three films that he made were propaganda movies for Mm -hmm. um, the fascist Japanese government that was uh, in power during the war. The third film is... I think devilishly subversive 
And one of the most powerful anti-war movies made during World War II, um, but he made it right under the noses of the people that were ordering him to make these films. Uh, the fourth film in the set is his first that he made under the American occupation, and so the propaganda line flips completely to uh, being a story about something else entirely with, a, enti with the exact opposite message. Um, and a lot of the movies that he made after that had a similar bend to them um, before he started to get a little slyly subversive uh, with the occupation. Um, so I, I think he's a really fascinating director um, in that he was always kind of a popular director making movies that were for a mainstream audience and speaking to the times. Um, but he always had a little bit of a uh, something else going on underneath the surface that was a little bit more subversive yeah. than um, you might expect from a filmmaker like him who would otherwise seem to be such a kind of career by the numbers filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that uh, that read on it. As I was revisiting my film, the first film that I'm going to talk about, I was surprised by. I, I think of his films as being maybe more sentimental, but there's something really caustic and really surprisingly, to reuse the word, subversive about the the ways in which he the ways in which he exposes and explores and criticizes Japanese society at the time and kind of lays bare some of the cracks that were going on in, in the time. And I think that's interesting. I think that's a really fascinating thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know the movie that you're going to talk about and it's a nasty little piece of work. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think, but in a very entertaining and amusing way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think he gets his reputation for sentimentalism from the only film that is in the main line of the, collection and because criterion has all the rights to his films um is the only high profile title of his in the u.s um, which is 24 eyes which is yeah. uh, a a weeper it's a woman's weepy about the loss that the japanese suffered during world war ii but i i also find that movie quite subversive and i i think it speaks to the futility of war and the pain that is caused in particular to women through the process of war in a way that is i rarely see in films and i think in a lot of ways that movie is one of the most powerful anti-war movies that I've seen because I think it speaks to something that's much deeper than just look at this destruction or, you know, look at the deaths of these men who die in battle. There's no way to watch that movie and come away thinking, oh, but, you know, they died for the glory of their country or, you know, yeah. weren't they cool to fight in, in that war, hold a gun and go out and kill somebody. It's a, it's a, it's a profoundly sad portrait of, the death and destruction that was caused. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we just go ahead and dive into the films that we're going to discuss? Uh, Matt, what was your first film that you would like to talk about? So both of the movies that I'm going to talk about are um, from his time 
making movies under the American occupation. Um, this was a period from the end of the war when Japan surrendered to, uh, I, I believe, 1952. And it's one of the most fertile periods for Japanese filmmaking in history. Uh, this was when Kurosawa came into his own. Ozu made his his masterpieces, Late Spring and Tokyo Story, and um, it's it, it, it's just a really exciting but also interesting time because there were censors and they weren't able to um, to show everything that they might have wanted to show. And I think the first movie that I'm going to talk about, which is um, Here's to the Young Lady, is a really good example of this because I think what Kenosha is talking about here ultimately is the American occupation. This is a movie that stars Setsuko Hara the same year that she made Late Spring, which is another film that is slyly about the American occupation in a lot of ways. Also about a lot more than that, but um, that's certainly an undercurrent of the film. Here I think it's even more apparent. This is a movie about a guy who basically gets set up he's a very successful businessman and he gets set up with uh on on basically like an arranged marriage blind date with a woman and the woman is Setsuko Hara which is basically like <laughs> like what is I mean it's basically like the dream but best case scenario you get set up with Setsuko Hara um one of the most beautiful women in movie history and in my opinion, the greatest movie star of all time. Um, and he responds in a, accordingly. <laughs> He's kind of like, what is happening? <laughs> this woman is way above my uh, level. How could I possibly uh, live up to her um, beauty and grace? And he discovers that the reason why her family is marrying her off is they have this uh, this secret side. They're suffering um financial worries because of the father's um uh, the father is in prison and the whole this this whole movie plays out as kind of a light satire screwball comedy with um some uh, amusing musical asides and yet the hmm. the metaphor of the film is so apparent uh to anybody familiar with uh, Japanese history at this point in that the guy is this successful businessman who's very impolite and loud and uh, you know is not true uh, doesn't um, understand tra the traditional uh, social relationships of the Japanese coming in to steal the crown jewel the the eternal virgin as her nickname was uh, of japan you know because of the indiscretions of the father um it's uh, it can't like they it couldn't be more obvious if he had sort of like an american subtitle um following him around during the movie um <laughs> But it, it's still, it, it's both, it works on both levels for me. It's both um, enjoyable to think about the historical context and um, also very fun and funny to kind of see his interactions with her. And of course, she's um, luminous and uh, gives a, a wonderful performance as the daughter. It's a, a very fun movie. That sounds delightful. And, you know, anytime you get to see Setsugahara in a film. She's, you know, a delight. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a real charmer and uh, really, really fun. Yeah, this is one I've missed so far. 
it's kind of unusual in his catalog up to this point there hadn't been a lot of more these more straightforward kind of romance comedy kind of films so it, it's it, it stands out in that way too from this era mm-hmm. uh, well my first film is danger stock sneer from 1957 so a little less than a decade later and uh, it is a very dark crime comedy with these delightful elements of farce and absurdism i find this absolutely charming and funny but really really dark and as you said it's it's a nasty piece of work the film opens as two young men uh, harass and bully a third young man who's just trying to get a little money so that he can make his way back to the country. They force him to join in the burglary of a house just outside the city where an old woman has money hidden away. She parcels it out to her family as they need things, but very grudgingly. She owns the house and uh, doesn't want to let anyone have any piece of the money there's only supposed to be one woman tetsu and her daughter yuriko there but the drama inside the house gets more chaotic than the burglars could ever have anticipated yuriko's husband has won a camera worth fifty thousand yen they and the husband and wife intend to keep it a secret from the grandmother their son is homesick a lodger's burned a hole in the t- uh, tatami mat causing her to be evicted and the mat needs to be replaced people are coming and going from every entrance the burglars never have a chance to approach the house we have more than one person scheming to get tetsu's money more than one person scheming to get the money from yuriko Yuriko and her husband. Um, it's just, it's chaos there. There, it, you know, every time you open one door, there's more people coming into the house and out of the house. I know that people think of this as kind of slight or maybe minor Kenoshida, but I really love this film. It's really funny, and he manages to. Uh, have this rising tension throughout as the bell rings every time the bell the front door rings uh, with the bell you keep expecting to see the burglars appear there's a great moment where the burglars they're just so tired of waiting they just say that's it let's go down and kill them all um, and uh, every time it rings we keep expecting to see somebody there the door slides open the he keeps playing with the way the the feet are shot the the angles it's 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 a delightful film i think that it is a really interesting critique of this post-war scramble to get ahead of the the way the economic situation was in japan at the time and the way it keeps deteriorating and the way that they're all really willing to um kind of shove each other aside in order to get ahead to put one over on each other uh the the married couple is trying to figure out how to hide the money from the grandmother who's trying to figure out how to hide it from them uh it's it's everything we think of um when we think of kind of japanese family dramas about family taking care of each other is completely upended in this film Mm. yeah um everybody's just the worst in this movie Yes, and, yes. But in a, in like a really loving and delightful way. And Yes. <laughs> I mean, this could very easily be uh, a movie f- 
from Hollywood in the eighties, like the, yeah. you know, the burglars yeah. aren't the bad guys, you know, aren't the worst people in the movie would yes. be like the tagline. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, it's just like they're cause I mean, they're pretty ridiculous and hopeless, but they just keep, they, they can't even get, you know, a leg up because there's just <laughs> constant uh, chaos in this house and it's all around money and covering up greediness with politeness and covering up, you know, rudeness with, with trying to be generous. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's chaos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I was surprised. I, you know, I, when I, when I first watched it, I thought, oh, this will be fun, maybe slight, but I'm, it, it'll be, it'll be fun. Uh, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed this one. Uh, this was, you know, I like my dark comedies and the, you know, I, I'm a, a theater kid and the, the elements of the, the doors constantly opening and mm. people can, coming and going. It just, it reminds me of those, those great farces and, uh, and it, and there's, there's elements of that screwball comedy too, of the thirties, uh, uh, a little darker element of it, but um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a joy. So this is one that I think is is really fun. If you want a uh, if you think of uh, Kenosha as sentimental or even melodramatic, I think this is a nice one that kind of takes the air out of that notion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, what's your your second film that you'd like to talk about? So my second film is uh, Carmen Comes Home, which is uh, not the best movie ever made, um, but it is a very interesting film in that it is the first all-color film uh, made in Japan. And it was actually shot both in color and in black and white because they weren't sure uh, about the, the process. Uh, be coming out right and in fact uh in most theaters uh most people saw the black and white version when it was released which is a shame because the color in this movie is spectacular um the the film is uh, about a girl who left her hometown uh when she was young she ran away from home it's a small town uh, that is surrounded by uh by mountains and she went to the big city to tokyo uh, to make it big and uh she makes it big in uh the nudie dances <laughs> and mm-hmm. um she's she's been a good daughter sending home money to her uh her father who refuses to uh to even think about her um because he's so mad that she left home because she was his favorite and she decides that she wants to come back and show how uh, wonderful she's become and how famous and what a what a star she is uh, and she brings home her friend uh, who's getting over a breakup and uh, basically hilarity ensues <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh it's a movie that is definitely held up by uh, the performances in it, uh, in particular Hideko Takamine in the lead role, is very charming and delightful. And without her, I think the film would fall apart pretty completely. Yeah. But Chish- Chishu Ryu is in it as well, um, and mm-hmm. is is really wonderful. And uh, the clothing is great, and there's some really wonderful, delightful sequences. Um, in particular, the performance itself, which is takes place on a stage that the the 
businessman in town who wants to make money off of them uh, builds the stage for them to perform on and tells the people who are building it to not worry about building it well and spending money on it because it'll only be around for the night. And so they just danced this stage to, to almost complete <laughs> um, collapse. Uh, and it, it, it's got a lot of energy. Um, there was a sequel made uh, called Carmen's Innocent Love, uh, which is uh, more of a straight comedy than this is, and probably a better film. Um, but uh, you got to see the first one to see the second one. So yeah. Um, yeah. I... I wouldn't uh say that this uh would be in top tier kenoshida but i think it's definitely uh, a film worth watching and it's uh pretty short as well it's only about 80 minutes um so it goes by quickly and i definitely recommend it yeah yeah this one was a lot of fun um these are maybe not the best films like you were saying but there's something incredibly charming and i think that the performer is hands down it's it's the reason to see this film yeah and uh the colors like you said are just dazzling and again there's there's still a little bit of that subversiveness you know there is this perception from chishu ryu and the father that uh, when she dances she's going to embarrass them because everybody is going to be making fun of of uh of them for having a daughter like this um, because they you know they live in a small town and they have traditional values they're not like the people from the big city but of course the men flip out over this dance it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to them and you know it's the people in the in the small towns are not so different from the people in the big cities when it comes to uh this 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 sort of thing yeah yeah so i'm gonna jump quite far ahead by about almost 30 years for my my last film that I'm going to talk about and uh it is uh it's one of his last films uh Children of Nagasaki this may be one of Kenoshida's angriest films um we've been talking a lot about kind of the subversiveness of Kenoshida's work and how that plays out in some very subversive and quiet ways throughout his films. And I think this is all on the surface here. It is such an angry film and it's based on the memoirs of a doctor who was widowed during the bombing of Nagasaki and who treated patients and tried to rebuild his family and his community following the destruction uh, there. It spends a lot of time before the bombing building the extended family relationships, getting us to care about the children, the grandparents, the wife, the aunts and uncles, the cousins, uh, getting us to understand who these people are. We're plopped down in the middle of a Christian community just outside of Nagasaki, which is where the bomb was ultimately dropped. We learn later that Americans were probably targeting a steel factory nearby, but um, the doctor reflects with irony, bitter irony, that um, the fact that they ended up, you know, bombing a community that was against the war, that was against the emperors, was against all of the nationalism that was sweeping Japan at the time as well, and that um, the ones who were hardest hit were ones who were probably more sympathetic to ending the war and to the cause of peace. 
so there's this this deep um, sadness throughout the film that these are the ones who are uh, most affected by this. When the bomb is dropped, Kenoshido wisely avoids showing us the the true horrors. This isn't some kind of uh, we're not we're not seeing all of the gruesome carnage right away. I think it would be too much to handle so early in the film. So instead, we're we're seeing things through the eyes of the survivors. We're seeing them encountering other survivors, and we're seeing how much they don't know about what's happened. And we're seeing the doctors as they're trying to treat the disease, uh, as they're trying to treat radiation sickness without any words, without any knowledge, without any understanding of what is going on here. Uh, As these unexplained illnesses strike members of the family that we've met, uh, as they bleed unexpectedly, as hair falls out, as they get weaker and are unable to move, uh, the result is is so horrifying and just dreadful. We see this confusion as doctors, as nurses, as the medical professionals try to understand what's causing these illnesses. We see the apathy and the resistance of Americans uh, who are now occupying Japan. And um, we see the apathy of the journalists. We see this kind of almost... um, morbid curiosity as journalists take pictures for their own publications and uh it's uh it's just an absolutely heartbreaking film the you can sense even you know 30 years later how angry kenoshida is about what happens and uh it's uh it's a powerful film that uh i just think it is uh the fact that he made it when he was so old and yet it still contains this ferocity is really remarkable. And uh, I would recommend that uh, you go into it knowing what you're getting into, that this is not the, the Kenosha that you may have come to expect <laughs> as you're working your way through it's not, it. It's not the uh, third film in the Carmen series. No, no, no. This is not even the, the nasty piece of work of Danger <laughs> Stocks near. This is, uh, this is, uh, this film wrecked me. It seared itself into my brain when I saw it. And uh, this is, uh, for those who have seen Grave of the Fireflies, mm. um, you know, that is such a traumatic experience watching that film. This is a very similar type of film in some ways, um, just exploring how horrific the cost was. And um, it's it's really, really incredible. And uh, I I think that it's a film that, needs to be seen more uh just today as i was kind of doing some refreshing uh, there's just not a lot written about it there aren't very many critics who have reviewed it there isn't much critically written about this film out there and uh i think um it's one that needs to be seen more so uh matt i'll be really eager to when you get to that point in your chronology to hear your thoughts uh as you get there yeah i i I won't say that i'm looking forward to it but i am looking (laughs) forward to it it also also reminds me of a late Imamura film that I hope Criterion eventually gets their hands on uh, called Black Rain, which is half a, a movie about the atomic bomb dropping and half a Ozu tribute. Uh, it's a very mm. interesting and incredibly 
moving film, uh, also made during the 1980s when I think a lot of Japanese filmmakers were really examining that war experience in a in a new and dynamic way they were able to kind of talk about things in a on a to a with a lower degree of censorship without the barriers that um that banning content may have uh caused in earlier decades so it's uh it's a fascinating time and obviously it's a unfathomable tragedy what happened yeah yeah so um, I'm glad to have just brought the conversation down. <laughs> well, it, let me there. let me let me just uh, mm-hmm. call out to uh, I realized as I was as we were talking about these films, there is a sixth uh, Kenoshida. So I just want to uh, correct my previous statements. Um, <laughs> the uh, Ballad of Narayama was Kenoshida. I always forget he directed that that film um and was later remade by imamura so there's a connection uh-huh. right there yeah um, yeah. yeah but that yeah, that's yeah. a really yeah. wonderful movie um mainly because the the sets are extraordinary and that also mm-hmm. stands mm-hmm. out in his career but he had a very di- diverse career um as as anybody will see who who explores these films or even these four films are all pretty yeah. different yeah i think you know the the stuff that we have chosen really do span so many different types of film one of the other films that i saw that i didn't include in this list that i might talk about in a future one is apostasy which mm. is you know a a film you know that is dealing with issues of the state versus the individual and i mean there are just there's so many different types of films that he seems to have approached in different styles in different eras and um and i think that's really pretty remarkable when you think about it the fact that i was i i forgot the fact that he had directed the carmen films as well uh, yeah i mean he's he was all over the place well and and the other thing is that you know his his career spanned about 45 years and he made 50 yeah. films <laughs> um, yeah. i mean the yeah. the the period that i'm talking about um from uh mourning for the ozone family in um in 1946 to the i think uh, the carmen sequel was the last one made under mm-hmm. uh, the american occupation those are the the span of the american occupation um he made 17 films in those six years so his pace was not sustainable um but yeah. but it's also just wild to think about the number of of movies that he made in in his career uh, it's really uh, a, 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 a sign of just like how creatively engaged he was and just wanted to work yeah yeah well i hope that gives you a little taste of the films of kisuke kenoshida and i hope that gives you four films to potentially check out on the criterion channel that you may have missed so here are four to check out here's to the young lady danger stocks near Carmen Comes Home, and Children of Nagasaki. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed talking about Kenoshida with you. Thank you for uh, having me on for Kenoshida. It it's prompted me to keep going on this journey, and the films I discovered have made me want to keep going even more, so it's exciting. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, you're continuing your journey through Kijlowski. Where are you currently right now in your podcast? And uh, where are you going to be in the coming months? 
We released our Three Colors Blue earlier this month, and we will be covering Three Colors White in April. And I'm very excited to have uh, Erica Long back on for White and Red to finish up Kieślowski's work and um, wrap up the season. It's uh, been a wonderful journey and a very rewarding one. That's very great. Uh, where can people find you online? I'm Matthew E.G. on Letterboxd. That's the best place to find me. You can find the show at The Complete Pod on Twitter. Great. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is now a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to continue to thank all of our current Patreon supporters. Your support really does make all of this so sustainable, and I appreciate everything that you do to keep the show running. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, Matt and I are going to return for follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss more Japanese films that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.